Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is business consultant, entrepreneur and venture capitalist Doug Wilwarding. Doug Wilwarding is the founder and managing principal of the Optimus Group, a venture investment firm founded in 2008. Prior to founding the Optimus Group, Doug worked from 1986 to 2008 in the accounts receivable management industry, including his time from 1998 to 2007 as chairman and CEO of Omnium Worldwide. In 2007, he sold Omnium to West Corporation. Doug holds BSBA and MBA degrees from the Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver. Doug and his wife Elaine have three grown daughters. Doug and Elaine live in Omaha, Nebraska and Steamboat Springs, Colorado. He's an avid fly fisherman, golfer, snow skier, cyclist, and reader. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. So we were just chatting outside there, and I and I said that I have a huge amount of admiration for you. And I know several people in the community, too, that also have a huge amount of admiration for you. But as I also said, um, we're going to save the generous sentiments until later. <laughs> and let's tackle, let's get straight into some like thornier issues first, I think. You and I have had some intriguing personal conversations in the past. I want to start by exploring one of those topics, the nature of business, uh, capitalism, and the social good. And I, I wonder if maybe a good place to start is the conscious capitalism movement. And you'll be aware of that, but I wonder if you might offer an explanation of it and your thoughts on, on that movement. My definition of conscious capitalism would... Uh, probably be around the idea that in today's marketplace, every service, every product, uh, every type of business is replicated many times over. And it's very difficult to distinguish one competitor from another. And it's, it's an awareness I realized uh, back when I was running Omnium that if we had, uh, if we had shut the lights off, on any given day, within a matter of months, uh, probably in a matter of weeks, all of our clients would have found a new service provider. Within a matter of months, we would have been a trivia question. They would have had a hard time remembering our name. Uh, so what we were doing in the marketplace, while it added value, was not something that couldn't be replicated by a competitor of ours. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on, once I came to that realization, what was the purpose of our business? And my conclusion was the purpose of our business was to help the people that invested some portion, a significant portion of their lives on a daily basis in making that business work, realize their full potential. And by doing so, we had an opportunity to attract and retain really highly talented people because they got a return on the investment of their time much greater than a paycheck. I still believe that principle about all the businesses we're involved in today. Uh, while we offer great services, great products, there's nothing we're involved in that you can't find somewhere else. So the real challenge for us and the, the purpose of our business is to create a work environment where the people that show up there every day and commit themselves to the success of the business realize something greater than just a paycheck. They advance their lives. They get closer to realizing whatever dream they might have. I, I think that's partly why I mentioned at the beginning that there are people in this community that hold you in high regard. Because to some degree, that attitude you've just expressed about how you ran that business, the ethos of it, 
is prominent in some of our uh, corporate citizens and is maybe less prominent with with some others. And this is a poor paraphrasing, but Aldous Huxley was describing other institutions. But to paraphrase him, he perhaps could say that corporations are places of organized lovelessness. Mm -hmm. And we know from Gallup research, for example, that there are far too many people in employment today who are disengaged from from their workplace. But that isn't an ethos that you're talking about. And I'm, I'm wondering then how that ethos came to be for you. Really out of, a, a, to some extent, a burning platform. Um, I, I had to come to this awareness. Uh, when I acquired Omnium Worldwide in 1998, you can diligence a company you're going to buy, but there you can't diligence culture very effectively because you're going to be told and hear kind of what what they want you to hear and what you want to hear. You, you're I I refer to it as being deal pregnant. Once you fall in love with a a deal, you'll find a way to get it done. And I got into that business and realized that while there there were a lot of really good people there working really hard, the culture was very fractured. And we had extremely high turnover, about 120% a year. So it was really hard to become productive and profitable when you're losing your talent faster than you're gaining them. I was, I was blessed with putting together a really introspective and purposeful team of people. And we sat back and looked at that and asked ourselves what the real problem was. And the problem was that we were attempting, uh, the business was attempting before our time to drive profit at the expense, to your point, of taking care of the people. And I don't, I, want, I don't want to go as far as say that people were a commodity to the business, but people were not being viewed as uh, the driver of the organization. And we ask ourselves all the way down to the foundation pinnings, what's going on in this culture and why is it behaving the way it's behaving? And we rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up. We, uh, everywhere from every point from what questions did we ask our employment app on our employment applications to how did we do performance reviews how did we do compensation aligning all of those aspects of the business to the purpose of helping people perform at their best as opposed to driving a profit one of the principles that i i grew up with was that profit was a byproduct of doing the right things and doing them in the right way to the best of your ability if you if you address those three core values, you will, it's almost impossible not to be profitable. And if you're profitable and you reinvest that profit back in the people, you'll continue to perpetuate that value proposition. So we rebuilt the business around that proposition. It was very hard. There were a lot of people, especially on the management team that didn't believe. I think I started with eight executives and a year later I had one of those people left because they didn't buy into where we were going with the business but we hired intentionally around people sharing those values. And like most things, if you can get momentum and uh, the flywheel spinning towards value proposition, it, be- it takes on a life of its own. That culture got so much bigger than, than my thought or my team's thoughts about it. And the people at every level of the organization embraced it and it became theirs. And then we truly had something that was special. It's obviously heartwarming 
that there's that people-centric, people-first mm -hmm. philosophy. And you have been very successful in business. And, and I want to join those two mm -hmm. thoughts together because in some ways, the attitude of people-first in business isn't necessarily a majority opinion. It may even be seen to be somewhat old-fashioned or outmoded nowadays. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you respond to or feel about a marketplace where perhaps that ethos isn't as prominent as, as you've demonstrated it can be. Well, I, I think that a marketplace that doesn't value people misses the only thing that differentiates any business today. Everything you do in your business, from this recording studio to software to any product, can literally in today's world be replicated in a matter of days. And so to think that you have a sustainable competitive advantage in your product or your software code is to delude yourself on a daily basis that of some value that's not there. The only thing you can do as a business person that is absolutely unique to your business and to no one else's is hire people because those people only exist one time on the planet. Out of the seven and a half billion people on the planet, there's only one of each one of us. And if you assemble that team, that team is absolutely exclusively unique to your business. And only you can help re help that pe those people realize their potential and help them bring the value to the marketplace that they can bring. Any other differentiation is, is very fungible. You know, I said that we would <clears throat> talk about some, some of the trickier issues. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we have many tricky issues in our economy and in, in the corporate world. So let's continue this thread mm -hmm. by me asking about Supreme Court decisions and uh, perhaps the uh, m more famous expression of that by Mitt Romney on the campaign trail that businesses or companies are people. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a little more nuanced, but the idea that a business has an empowerment in some way uh, similar to the rights of a person. And I wonder if you have a, a a position or a take or a view on, on that concept? Well, I, I, th I think that's two different definitions of person. It's, it's an entity that exists separate from the people that make it up. So it has its own, uh, it, its own existence and its own persona versus human beings that have souls. Uh, businesses, the reason that corporate structure was created and supported by the Supreme Court was to create an, an ability to shield the individuals from liability of the enterprise, which, you know, once it gains trajectory can go in a lot of directions that don't have anything to do with what the individual individual in the company might hope or want for that. So I understand the legal separation of those two things. I don't think that the intent, and I, I can't speak for Mitt Romney or the Supreme Court, but I don't think the intent was to imply that a human being and a business have equal spiritual potential and soul potential. And so I, when I speak of people, I'm speaking of the human being and everything that makes them up at their core. Stuart, I've had thousands of people work for me over the years. And I've never had anybody walk in the front door over 32 years of being in business that said, I hope I suck today. It's just not in human nature. Every person wants to contribute. 
They want to be recognized as an important part of the organization. In the absence of clear direction from us as managers, they will do what they think is in the best interest of the business, and they will try hard. If we put a blindfold on them and give them a handful of darts, they will throw those darts. They have no chance of hitting the target. Our job in order to release their potential and help them realize their full capability in an organization, whatever that organization is, is to remove the blindfold, clearly communicate, provide them, communicate the goals and objectives, provide them the training and the space to achieve those goals, and then offer them the support while they're going through that process. If an enterprise is failing, there's only one person that needs to look in the mirror, and that's the leader of the enterprise, and ask themselves, have I clearly communicated? Have I put the right people in jobs that they are able to succeed in? Have I given them the training and the skill set to uh, skill set and tools to achieve that? And have I given them adequate time to achieve it? If you do those things, you have a high probability of success. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. like that distinction between how we might think about companies as people and, and humans as people, but you use the word soul, mm-hmm. and, and clearly humans um, in that interpretation have this inner consciousness, this inner spirit, this inner soul. You and I have disagreed before on, and this was some years ago, I think our thinking may have developed since then, but we, we had a conversation about companies, in my estimation, being amoral, meaning they're an artifice and therefore they they serve a purpose, they're a vehicle, mm-hmm. but they don't inherently have either morality or immorality. They just are a tool for functioning uh, as a business. You push back on that and you said, no, that's not really true because companies are occupied by people mm-hmm. and therefore they have a morality, but it's the morality of the people that make up that organization. 
and my head went there just because you're talking about the difference between an entity as a corporation, but then right. the people with souls that make it up. So I guess I want to revisit that a little okay. bit and just ask you, you know, how do businesses go about acting in the world that we have to live in, but doing so making choices or acting in ways that we can see as having a moral equation to them? Well, I think you've introduced a third person into the conversation. So the first person was the legal entity that is the business and has standing as, uh, as a quote unquote person in the eyes of the court system. The second person we talked about were the employees of the business. And then there's this third persona that is the culture of the business. I believe Ralph Waldo Emerson said, every institution is the length and shadow of a single individual. That puts a, a, a big burden on the leadership of the organization because the leader ultimately is the embodiment of the culture of the organization and, sh and whether willingly or unwillingly is living and demonstrating the behaviors that they value and that will ultimately be emulated in the organization. I do believe that enterprises can take on cultures and personas that are the manifestation of the values and principles of their leaders. And that ultimately you will see the employees mimicking those values and behaviors and over time accepting them as the, the mores of that organization for good or, or bad. So is there, does that entity that is the corporation have a personality and a spirit and a soul? Yes, because it has a culture. Uh, that culture is the alchemy of all those spirits and souls coming together, but predominantly driven by that leader and those things that leaders reward and those things they punish, those things that prof they profess and those things they downgrade are all part of what makes up the culture of that organization. It's not a value statement on a wall because we've both walked into plenty of businesses that have very pristine values on the wall with that within five minutes, we realize they have no intention of upholding. So that, that personality does exist. And I think that might be the third person, which is that amalgamation of all the other people coming together. It makes me then want to ask, looking back on the election that we've just had and the pundits and commentators perhaps suggesting that there's this degree of angst and anxiety amongst a vast portion of the population who aren't feeling some of the benefits that are accruing in you know, a first world economy. Part of that, perhaps, is to see the, the moral or less moral actions or less, you know, uh, actions of less integrity from organizations, for example, like Wells Fargo. When, when we talk about where are these displays, this alchemy of values being demonstrated mm -hmm. and to see a lack of accountability, to see only success being rewarded at certain levels, but... Um, failures of that moral alchemy not being punished or people being held accountable for it. How do you go about looking at the business world and maybe pursuing your own business mm -hmm. opportunities with a lens on the alchemy when when it would seem as if there are some bad actors and, and those people striving to create an right. alchemy of positive culture? There are more than some bad actors. I mean, we, we have a society that has promoted and rewarded greed uh, to a great extent. And that therefore we have this concentration of wealth at the very apex of the food chain. And I, I believe that over time, I haven't, I haven't lived in that world, 
but I believe over time that becomes uh, the the end game is merely accumulating and amassing on the scoreboard to to a level that uh, makes no sense other than to say you know to be able to show how big the score got. Uh, I don't know how you turn that around, um, and I I don't know how you change that moral code in these organizations other than one organization at a time, right? As an investor, when I look at investing in small and emerging businesses, I I follow a rubric that Mike McCarthy here in Omaha, a famous investor, taught me a long time ago. Uh, Most people, when they look investments, look at numbers, products, markets, and people. Mike turns that upside down and says it's people, markets, products, and numbers. The numbers are really irrelevant at this point because if you're investing in the right people with the right motivations and the right moral structure and the markets have potential, in other words, you're not investing in something that has been antiquated for 25 years, the rest of that stuff will take care of itself. It's all about the people you're investing in. To that end, if you know, when I got into this venture capital business, I thought I'd do about eight deals a year. I've done eight in 11 years. <laughs> so it's a really slow process to find those right people. Is that because, as you said earlier, it's difficult to do due diligence on a culture? Very. So the numbers is actually quite easy. Right. Which might explain how you've done fewer deals than you thought. Right. Uh, so how do you then, borrowing from that, that sage advice, go about the process of understanding the moral structure, the values, the talent, and the alchemy of that in an organization? Slowly. You, you have to be very patient. You can't get excited about doing a deal until you have that moment months and months into meeting these people, spending time with them, asking them the same question over and over again, living in their environment being there so much that they forget you're there. So they start to act like themselves, you know, in, investing and in, in invest, uh, investigating entrepreneurs is a lot like a first date. They will never be on better behavior than the day before you close the deal. So you really have to spend a lot of time there and watch them get comfortable and start to behave in their normal manner. Uh, only then can you make a decision about whether or not this is someone that you trust that will treat your capital like it was theirs or maybe better. Um, And that you look at them and say, six years from now, I think I'd still like to have a beer with this person versus I can't wait to get out of this deal. That takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of deals will pass by you that you don't get done. And you got to be okay with that. Um, Stay curious. Always ask yourself the question, what's the question I haven't asked? Sometimes you're asking uncomfortable questions. Over. Too much 
I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives. My guest today is Doug Wilden. So, of course, I'm begging now to ask about the, the ones that, that work super well and, and, and the lemons. Oh, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, Tell us a story about, you know, a decision that went well and um, perhaps one that we can learn from. Okay. So a couple have gone well and um, not without pain, but they resulted in a good outcome for everyone that were in really strong growth markets, nothing really sexy about the businesses. They were kind of blocking and tackling businesses. Uh, A lot of times we had to work to bring in some strong management teams that we hadn't, uh, didn't have in the, uh, the original team we invested in. And it was about creating the environment where the management team and the investors could work hand in hand to continually uncover the potential of the people in the organization, make sure we were aligning them with their best available opportunities and working with the company to position itself so it was optimized for success. Some of the worst deals, the, the bad ones tend to go bad really fast, and which I guess is a good thing because it's kind of like tearing off a Band-Aid. If it's, right. it's going to hurt, let's have it all hurt at once. And in those cases, what we uncovered was that um, we had allowed ourselves to be misled about the team and the direction of the business. And normally, I'll take full responsibility for that, is that it was just our impatience on my team's part. We wanted to get a deal done. We liked the idea. And we probably got a little lazy and allowed ourselves. You know, there's a lot of rationalization that occurs when you do a bad deal. And then a lot of penance occurs afterwards when you're going back and recognizing your rationalization and beating yourself up for it. I don't know how many people listening to this uh, show and listening to the uh, podcast that are going to be CEOs or senior executives, but what in your estimation should they be thinking about? And what do you look for or how do you identify a great CEO from one that is fairly average? You know, I, I think we can extend your question to any person in any position. I don't, uh, being the CEO is to a great extent no different than being uh, a frontline 
customer-facing position. The first and most important thing is, are you doing something that makes you happy every day? And whether it's CEOs or frontline employees, the, uh, what I've noticed in businesses that are failing is that people are on a daily basis getting up and going to work and not enjoying what they're doing. Either the, the, what the job demands of them from an intellectual or a physical standpoint isn't aligned with who they are. The amount of time it takes doesn't align with their values and what they want to be doing. Or their, their sense of sacrifice is not aligned with the reward they're realizing. So helping people think through what makes you happy during the day. Because when you find that thing that makes you happy, whether you're the CEO or a salesperson or the mechanic in the garage, you never work a day in your life after that because you get to do what you love. That's what makes the best CEOs is they're aligned with the demands of the job. And in my opinion, the CEO has got a few very simple jobs. One is to make sure that the the vision and the direction of the organization is clearly communicated in very plain language. Everyone in the organization should be able to articulate where we're going, why we're going there, and why I, as an individual in the business, care about arriving. If they can't articulate that, the CEO hasn't done their job. The second job the CEO has is put together the team that can achieve that vision. Go out and find the best talent and the best people you can find. Not just smartest, not just toughest, but best human beings you can find that can help you get that job done. And then the third job is remove interference. Get all the things out of the way of the people that are preventing them from being there, realizing their full potential and being successful. If you do that as a CEO, you will be successful. That alignment that happiness, that sense of purpose and fit for your role is true of every person in the organization. Where we screw up from a human resources standpoint is we don't spend enough time understanding what people want from their work and helping them find work that aligns with what they're hoping to achieve. I've never been a big fan of hiring people that would just wanted to get paid because they'll go anywhere and do anything for an extra quarter, an hour. And I don't begrudge that people need to make a living. But when you can find that person that it's more important to them that they're doing something that fits who they are, they don't have to worry about how much money they'll make because they'll make plenty and they'll be happy doing it. I love that part of your people first philosophy also includes this idea that ownership, the investment class, the executive class also has a role to play in this compact, this work-based social contract that if everybody is playing to their strengths, enjoying themselves, finding purpose and they're fit for this role, that it, it's of benefit to everybody. And I wonder if that particular approach to the world of work is going to help society at large as we increasingly globalize, as we increasingly automate, and the nature of what work becomes potentially less open even to, to humans as we automate a number of current jobs away and the whole landscape of what work looks like changes. I'm going to argue against that. I think that's, that's a, a theory that we like to put out there um, because we're enamored with automation. 
But the reality is that in, in history, automation's been around forever. And you know, going back to the invention of the wheel and then every mechanized device we've created over the centuries that has automated work that used to be done through something that was entirely manual. And in that process, we've created more and more jobs. There are more and more people working, to, more people working today than ever in the history of the planet, right? So I think that cycle will repeat itself as new tools come out. And all automation is, is the invention of a tool to do a specific task. As new tools come out, there will also be new jobs that come out, both making tools and deploying tools. I think what's really cool today, and this may be, I, I may have a myopic view of this based on the age of my children, but watching the millennials go back to the crafts and want to work with their hands, not taking the, the route to a high-tech job that they know would probably pay them more, but saying, I'm going to build cabinets or there's an artifact uh, here in Omaha that makes the bags and the aprons. They do an incredibly cool thing. He's only can, he can only scale that business so far, but the fact that that's the rewarding work that he's pursuing, I think, is a sign that as we automate society, there is a population that's going back to a much more tactile and satisfying type of work. And I think there will always be demand for that. I mean, I can, I, I can see a time in the future where we, we kind of move back out of the urban areas, leave the congestion, and the tools that we're inventing from an automation standpoint will allow us to stay connected without being in proximity to each other and move to simpler lives where people are doing more stuff on their own with their own hands. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I know a place not far from here sweet perfume fills the air And if you want I take
I love that idea that we de-urbanize because the movement of the last 100, 150 years or more has been towards urbanization. Mm -hmm. That idea that we reacquaint ourselves with um, something more human, something decentralized, something perhaps that is more in touch with the natural world and uh, not necessarily rural, but something that is less congested. Right. More communal. Yeah. More communal. Yeah. I, I think, you know, uh, and, and I've, I've lived in Omaha and then a much smaller city my whole life. Steamboat Springs is 13,000 people, which at this point in my life is starting to seem a little congested. But, um, and, and all of our kids live on the East Coast in major uh, metropolitan areas. And I'm watching them go through this process of first enjoying that and enjoying the buzz and the energy and the proximity to everything they can imagine. And now having grown up here in a, in a smaller community, as they mature, realizing that quality of life and quality of relationships and sense of really belonging to a community has a higher value to them than the sense of what they thought they would get from a value of a major metropolitan area and all the tax that you pay for living there. And that's not a, not a financial tax. It's an emotional tax. It's a physical tax. It's a relational tax that is expent by every person that lives there. And I think we're, we're going to, as a society, realize that life is short. And we want the sense of having a few really deep relationships and a sense of belonging. We're, we're, you know, we're tribal animals and we like to belong to things. We like to have a sense of who our community is. And I, I have a high respect for the millennials because I think they're the generation that is starting to get that and they're skewing economic gain for life gain. So that's a nice segue just to transition backwards um, because I want to ask you to tell me about your childhood. Oh, okay. Um, I'm an only child. My mother had two pregnancies, one which did not uh, result in a sibling for me. And I think, you know, if we looked at it now, she probably had uh, very traditional infertility problems that weren't diagnosed back then. Uh, growing up an only child in an entrepreneurial family, uh, my dad grew up without, his father died when he was very young and he had to be self-reliant at every level. And so being his own boss and starting his own companies was kind of the nature of the beast. And that's how I was trained. So I was raised in an entrepreneurial family and um, that value system and that work ethic of all of us working in the business every day, seven days a week was, I thought that was normal life for everyone. And, you know, we, uh, my dad worked really hard. He was, he was good at what he did, but we lived what would have been in the 60s and 70s, a very typical American middle-class life. Suburb, small suburban house. He got up every morning, went to work, and everybody went to school and did their thing. Um, I was, I always say I, I kind of won the genetic lottery. And I was athletically gifted, so I got to go to college on a swimming scholarship and had those experiences and that discipline in my life. Uh, swimming is a very solitary, uh, rigorous sport. It's a lot of training that goes in so you can perform as for as short a period of time as possible, which seems oxymoronic in most cases. But um, 
And that became the foundation of, you know, kind of who I was. The entrepreneurial side and the discipline side of athletics led me to pursue the path I pursued professionally. It strikes me as intriguing that in asking you to think about your childhood, that the context of that is around your parents, which I think to some degree maybe tells me a lot about how and why you form some of the values that, that you did, because it seems to be that when you think about your life, you didn't necessarily really focus on yourself, but the values that were shown to you by your family. I, that may be a result of being an only child too, mm -hmm. is you're born an adult. Um, you spend all your time with adults and you look at yourself as one of their peers, as opposed to if you had siblings, I assume, there are two tribes in the house, the adults and the children. I never had the other part of the tribe as other children, so I was assimilated into the adult life and spent most of my time there. So then, as we draw to a, towards a conclusion, I know that you are an avid fly fisher, and avoiding cliches, I want to ask you what it is about fly fishing that attracts you to it, and how fly fishing itself can be a metaphor for your own professional and personal philosophies. And perhaps in some way, I'm sort of hearkening to um, Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle mm -hmm. Maintenance, this idea that one can extract a life philosophy from, from other activities. Right. And for you, I'm just wondering if that can be done with fly fishing. It can. I just finished Persig's book this year. I'd never read it before. I thought it was fabulous. Um, I, think, I, I think fly fishing is kind of a life metaphor for me. And I, I discovered it through happenstance, it wasn't something that I decided at 15 that I was at some point going to be an avid fly fisherman. It just, it just happened. What I found in it that I found in nearly everything I do in my life is there is a, an immense amount of beauty, first of all, in so much of the world. And one of the things I love about trout, which is what I fish for, is they never live in ugly places. You have to go to someplace beautiful to find them. Secondly, it is an, a, an avocation that you cannot perfect. You will always be working at it. The environment's different every day. Every river's different. The wind, the weather. Uh, and so you're always challenged to reach within yourself and find an inner patience, a level of focus, a level of concentration, and really a level of solitude that allows you to be successful. Uh, when I started fishing, when I was running Omnium and I had 800 employees, I think I went fishing because you couldn't stand next to another person and do it. And it gave me a time to be alone. And back to being an only child, I need a lot of alone time and a lot of outdoor time. I'm very reflective and introspective. Um, as I got more and more immersed in, in the practice of fishing, um, I became intrigued with the nuances. It's like anything. You can learn the first 80% of the skill within about four hours. The last 20%, I'm assuming, is going to take about 65 years. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully I'll still be around and able to do it in that amount of time. Uh, but that pursuit of one perfect cast, uh, connecting to one of the most beautiful animals in the world through a very thin piece of filament for a few minutes is, is an incredible experience. And to me, it's very spiritual. 
I feel connected to the earth when I'm fly fishing, and that's an important part of how I regenerate myself. Half a mile from the county fair, and the rain came pouring down. Me and Billy standing there with a silver half a crown. Had to pull off a fishing rod and the tackle on our backs. We just stood there getting wet with our backs against the fence. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Hope it don't rain all day In a stormy to my soul Stormy just like jelly rolls In a stormy I've been in conversation with the business consultant, entrepreneur, and venture investment capitalist, Doug Wilding. Doug, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.